Isn't that an interesting picture up on the screen? wasn't something that I would have normally chosen for a church service. And I thought with the, with the, the shading on this particular uh, TV, if you look on the one on the back, it's a little bit brighter. But basically it's a, a I don't know if it's called a bull buffalo. Or it's a male buffalo. I don't know what it is. But the male buffalo is defending a calf against a wolf attack. And if you look in the background, you see there are total of three wolves. And the one is getting the attention of the male while the other two are kind of creeping up from behind. And what it says to me is that this big male buffalo is about to die. But its intent is to save the calf. And it spoke volumes to me. And uh, you'll see in a few minutes why. So... um, if you will, I want you to turn to the, gospel, to, the, to the gospel. I want you to turn to Genesis. We're going to be looking at Genesis this morning. How many of you are familiar with the story of Joseph and his multicolored coat and his 11 brothers who hated him? I, to, to give us a synopsis, because we don't have time this morning to read from chapter 37 all the way through to chapter 53 of, <clears throat> of uh, Genesis. But uh, Joseph features prominently in these last chapters of the book of Genesis. He was a major player uh, in God's plan for the people of Israel getting uh, the land and, and, and making it through and ultimately the Messiah Jesus being born from that line, from that, that household that started out with Abraham and Sarah and came all the way through down through Judah, which was one of the 12 boys of, of Jacob, <clears throat> who, I mean, who became Israel. And then, um, and then Jesus, again, is our Messiah. But it goes all the way back to this Small group of people. If, if, you, if you read through the story, it's about 70 or so people at this point. So the clan of Jacob is about 70 people. It's Jacob and his wife and his other wife and his other wife and his other wife. And there are 11 boy, or 12 boys and then there's a bunch of wives and grandkids. And 70 people at this point in time. Now... Jacob, in his mind, in his heart, in his understanding and experience, has 12 children that were born to him, but one of them is dead, as far as he knows, and that's Joseph. Now, we know the story. Joseph was the favorite of Jacob, of all the 12. And when Joseph was just a young guy, about 17 years of age, his father Jacob sent him to go see how things were going with his brothers who were managing the flock. And if you, if you take the time to read it, you'll see that Joseph was a snitch. Joseph used his little special relationship with his papa to manipulate and get his brothers in trouble. And so this, this isn't a fun story about a nice house and good mommy and daddy and, you know, the Brady Bunch or, or all of that. It is nothing like that. This is dysfunction personified. 
You've got a dad who's in love with one woman, but he got forced to get married to another woman before he was allowed to marry her sister. Now, so now you've got sisters who are rivals with each other. And you can tell that story. Remember the story of the mandrakes? Where one son brings mandrakes to his mother and the other, the other wife says, Oh, I would love to have some of your mandrakes. She said, Yeah, you want some? Well, you let me sleep with my husband then tonight. I mean, it's that kind of dysfunction that's going on. Horrible, horrible stuff. So now we're in this situation where Joseph... Oh, and I forgot to mention the fact that Joseph said, Hey, everybody, God gave me a dream last night. And guess what? All of you are going to bow down to me one day. That was a real winning thing to say to your dysfunctional brothers and sisters. And your, I mean, my mom and even his dad goes, excuse me, you think your mom and I are going to bow down to you? What are you talking about? And it literally says that his brothers in verse 11 of chapter 37, his brothers were jealous of him. And it says, but his father kept the saying in mind. His father was like, I wonder what this is all about. It didn't change anything. They were still dysfunctional. They were still a mess. And so we get to this point where Jacob says, Hey, Joseph, I want you to go down and check on your brothers. And so they go, he goes down to Shechem, where they had gone to take care of the goats. I mean, take care of the sheep. <clears throat> and he gets there and he finds out that they're not there. Because <clears throat> they've already depleted that land and it's time to move the, herd, the flock on. And so they've moved on to a place called Dothan. And Joseph finds out from a man standing there that they've moved on to Dothan. So he goes on his way to Dothan to find his brothers and to see how things are going. So he can go back and tell his daddy all about what's going on with his brothers and get more brownie points with his dad. And the Bible says that the 11 brothers see that Joseph coming over the hill. And how can they recognize him from so far away? I mean, come on. How can you recognize anybody that's way, way far away? Because he's wearing that stinking, multicolored coat. And can you... I, I, I don't know any of your backgrounds enough to be able to say, how much of this do you relate to from your own house? How many of you have dealt with brothers and sisters who really didn't care for each other? Who were always antagonistic towards each other. The one who always was the best and the golden haired child so that mommy and daddy never saw anything wrong with them. And I'm the one that always gets in trouble. And he's the one that did it. I can remember one time in my own house. Ooh, this is getting recorded. I have to be careful. I can remember once when I was a child. My mother lined all seven of us up and there was a piece of paper on the table and a pencil. And she said, I want each one of you to write the word love. OK, so each one of us in line wrote the word love with this pencil on the paper. And then we're standing there and she walked over to the table and looked at the paper and looked at each one of the words that had written and written. And then she looked up at one of my brothers and she said, it was you, wasn't it? <laughs> he had written love. On the wall of our living room. <laughs> now, I, I, I have never analyzed this. I can't go back and try and fix it because I don't know all. But what was my brother saying when he wrote love? Wasn't he expressing a deep emotion? And he got shot down. 
And he got ripped to shreds, publicly humiliated in front of all of his siblings. And I would think if I were to ask him, and I might be able to ask him next week when I see him. (laughs) Do you remember that moment? Because there are things in our lives that burn into our memories when you're humiliated or when you are ridiculed or when you are belittled or when you are ostracized. How many of you, don't raise your hands, I'm raising for all of us, how many of you were the last person picked when they were choosing up sides for baseball, softball, basketball, football, whatever you're doing in high school or junior high or even elementary school? How many of you were the next to the last person and the person with buck teeth, cross-eyed, and pimples was standing on the wall next to you and you're going, oh, please pick me, please pick me, don't make me the last one, don't make me the last one after that one? Because I even, oh, That was me, wasn't it? I even in that moment, as I was next to the last, was going, I'm better than that! In my own dysfunction, trying to make myself feel better than that. And see, humanity does this. There's this old thing called carnality that we're told about as a result of the fall in the garden. This self-centeredness, this part of us that wants to be best always, wants to be number one, wants to be top. And when you're in a household of people who are all functioning out of their dysfunction, you end up with a lot of hurt and a lot of angst and a lot of pain and a lot of ugliness. And this isn't fun to talk about, but the reality is the Bible, if you've ever heard the expression, the the Bible doesn't pull any punches. The Bible gives us warts and all the people of God. And this is exactly what we see in these chapters of 37 all the way through to the end of Genesis with Joseph and his 11 brothers and his dad and his mom and his three other moms. And it's not a pleasant house to have grown up in. So I'm not trying to make any excuses for any one of them. They all had their issues. They all had their reasons. Who knows how many times Reuben got humiliated. Who knows how many times Judah or Simeon or any of them got humiliated or got harmed or got made to feel less than because their dad was a broken human being. Because their mom, can you imagine how Leah felt knowing that she was, she was marrying her husband by trickery? How she knew the very moment when he opened his eyes on their morning after their wedding and he looked at her and went, Ew, what are you doing here? How that pierced her soul? Now imagine That woman trying to rear children in that house. It's no wonder all of those boys were messed up. Now you've got dysfunctional daddy who has my boy. Happens to be number 10 down the road or something. Number, I don't remember the exact number. But he was, that's my boy, Joseph, that's my boy. And Reuben and all the others are going, well, what about me? What am I, chopped liver? I mean, I I have served you. I have done everything you've ever asked. And he gets the fancy clothes. And he gets to stay with you all the time. And he gets... So you can come to an understanding now. What's going on here in in chapter 37 when Joseph comes 
up over the hill into Dothan looking for his brothers that he's going to get some, some dirt on so he can go back and tell daddy. And their response is, look, here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him. Literally. Let's kill him. That's the thought. And throw his body into one of these pits here, one of these cisterns, because no one will find him. And then we'll be done with him. Now, Reuben obviously has some kind of, uh, uh, some kind of morality in him. He says, don't kill him, don't kill him. Let's just throw him into the pit alive. After all, he is our flesh and blood. I think Judah actually says that part of it. And that's kind of ironic that Judah would say, well, he is our flesh and blood, so we shouldn't kill him. <laughs> it's like, y'all are sick. Y'all are sick people. And somehow in this story, we're not told exactly how it works out, but somehow Reuben is not around when the group is gathered together and this group of this this caravan of Midianites comes through, and they all go, "Hey, let's get rid of this dreamer forever. We'll sell him, and we'll make a little bit to boot." And so they hoist Joseph up out of the the cistern. Now, can you imagine that scenario? Okay, this young seventeen-year-old boy has been thrown by his brothers down into a pit and left to die. And then his brothers come back, Joseph. Joseph, I'm so sorry. Here, man, let's throw you a rope and we'll help you get... Are you okay? You all right? Oh, I'm so... Here, come on, we'll help you up. So he's climbing the rope. Oh, finally, I'm saved. And the moment he gets to the top of the rope, what do they do? They bind him with that rope and they sell him. And in that time, the likelihood that he would ever see his beloved father again or his mother is nil. He's gone. I mean, in our day and age, if I want to, I can drive 350 miles in one day and I can be in Anchorage. But if he were to be sent 350 miles away, and I don't know what the mileage is between where they were and, and Egypt, but the reality was he was never going to see his family ever again. And what's really sick is these 11 boys take his coat, kill an animal, dip it in the animal's blood, and then come back to Daddy. Uh, Daddy, look what we found. Do you recognize this, Daddy? What do you think this might be, Daddy? What kind of sick, vile, disgusting act is that? They know how much their father is deeply in love with Joseph. Daddy, what do you think this might be, Daddy? And what is Joseph, not Joseph, uh, Jacob's response? He's shredded to the core. He's dead. He's dead. My heart, heart of my heart, he's dead. As his 11 boys are standing there going... That's exactly why we did this. Because all it is is you care about him and nobody else but him. <sighs> Just disgusting. Makes me want to vomit thinking about it. Now, fast forward about 15 years. Joseph has now been raised up. 
to a position of great honor and authority. He literally is number two in all of the empire of Egypt. They have gone through seven years of great harvests and fat. And everything is good. And the country of Egypt is thriving under, under Joseph's leadership. And then the seven years of famine start. And somewhere around the second year, Jacob turns to his sons, ten sons, he's not giving Benjamin up. And he says to his ten sons, I've heard that there's food down in Egypt, and I've heard that you can buy food, and we're about to starve to death because of this famine, so go down and buy some food. And so the ten sons, okay, and they form a caravan, and they go down to Egypt to buy food, having a clue that it's Joseph they're going to be interacting with. And we know the story. Joseph interacts with him. He's, de- he's mortified. He recognizes them instantly. They don't recognize him. And then he plays a little bit of a mind game with them. He gives them their food, but he also gives them their money back. And he says to them, I'm going to keep one of your brothers. Simeon has to stay. The rest of you can go back, but Simeon stays because I don't believe that you've got a younger brother back home. I want to see for myself. And they're like, ah. And they go back home without Simeon. And Jacob says, where's your brother? And they said, he heard about Benjamin. He says, I've got to bring Benjamin back to show him that there's really a Benjamin or I'm not going to get Simeon back. And the father says, I am not letting my only child go. You heard? It's right there. I'm not letting my only child go. He didn't say it exactly that way, but that's exactly what he was saying. And they live for a period of time until the food finally runs out. And Jacob says, you guys got to go back and get more food or we're going to die. And the son says, uh, Dad, if you remember, we can't go back unless Benjamin goes with us. I'm not letting my son out of my sight. If you take Benjamin away, anything happens to him. I've already lost Joseph. If Benjamin dies, I will go down to Sheol with evil on me. No, I can't let him go. Reuben literally says, Daddy, Daddy, You can kill my two sons if I don't bring him back safely. And Jacob says, no, no, he's not leaving. And then finally, Judah says, I will bear the full weight and brunt of the responsibility, Dad. If you will let him go, I promise you he will come back safely. And if he doesn't come back safely, Dad, I promise you, you can hold it against me for the rest of my life. I will be beholding to you forever. I will owe you a debt beyond anything that I could ever repay. But we've got to go and we've got to take Benjamin. And he literally says, we could have gone come back twice by now if you'd let us go. And finally, Jacob relents. And they go back to Egypt. And then Joseph and they meet. And then Joseph gives them their food. And then he gives them their money back again. Only this time, he puts a silver cup in Benjamin's bag and lets them depart. And as they're gone a number of hours, he then turns to his servant and he says, go get them. I want them back here. And the servant was part of this whole thing. He knew what was going on. So they get there, and they're out, and Reuben's like, well, what do you mean accusing us? We, we even brought the money back from the last time. And he says, 
I'm telling you that somebody stole my master's silver cup. And Reuben says, we will all open our bags. And if you find that silver cup, kill him. Kill that one. Go in and do it. That's how confident I am that you're wrong. So they all bring down their bags and all 11 of them open up their bags. And from Reuben all the way down to the youngest, they go through the bag and they go through the bag. And then finally they get to Benjamin's bag and they find the cup. And everyone loads back up and heads back to Egypt. And life is really, really bad right now. It's kind of like the wolves have finally surrounded us. I made a promise I can't keep. I'm trying to protect this guy, and I can't keep it. What am I going to do? I'm talking about the heart of Judah right now. I told my dad I would protect him, but he stole his cup. What am I supposed to do now? And they get back in Joseph's presence. And Joseph is not playing nice with them at this point. He's still pulling them and stringing them along. Because there's still a lot of dysfunction. But at the same time, if you were Joseph, would you just welcome them back into your life? After all the pain that they caused you? Until you knew that something had changed in the way that they were relating to you, you would not allow them welcoming, oh, come on guys, I'm your brother, it's all okay. See, it looks that way in the Bible, but think about it for reality. His own stuff, his own guardedness would have to be in place with all of this. And look what we see in chapter 44, verse 18. Judah comes up to Joseph and says, Oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. What he's saying is, let me talk quietly with you privately. Let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. And then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said, my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, uh, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces. And I have never seen him since. And if you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will be bringing my gray hairs in evil down to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, 
saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please, please, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. Let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that will find my father. And we know the rest of the story. Joseph begins crying and he sends all of his servants out. And then finally he tells his brothers, this is me. Don't worry about it. God intended good out of all the evil that you intended. It's a wonderful, wonderful ending to a wonderful, wonderful story. But this little episode right here. Judah taking on the role of redeemer for his brother. It is one of the things I, 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 I wrote in my Bible a number of weeks ago when I read this in my personal devotions. This is the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus himself personifying what it means to be a Messiah. Let me go in his place. Let me die, not him. Please, you don't understand. If, if this doesn't happen, horrible things will happen to my father. And it is worth it to me to die, to never see my wife again, to never see my children again, if I could only spare my father the pain of losing his only child. Please, please, please have mercy. And Joseph saw a change in the very core of his brother's being that convinced him that it was safe for him to reveal who he was. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, than they lay down their life for a friend. It is not normal for human beings to selflessly give of themselves. The little object lesson I was going to show the children was talking about the fact that I'm getting ready to get on a plane in a couple of days. And when I first get on that plane and get myself seated and put a seatbelt on and just sit there for a few moments before we begin taxiing out, the flight attendant and the crew of flight attendants is going to capture all of our attention and and request that we pay attention while they go through the safety briefing. And about halfway through that safety briefing, the flight attendant is going to take a little plastic cup hanging off of a tube with a little plastic bag and hold it up and it's going to fall down. And she's going to snap it like this and then put it on and, and show that you wear the cup. Even though the bag isn't going to inflate, the oxygen will be flowing. You've all heard this if you've flown any time before. But the one thing that they say when they give this safety presentation is, make sure you put your mask on first before you try to help anybody else. The reason is they don't want you laying out on the carpet. They need everyone 
to be breathing. They need everyone to be of right mind. They need everyone to be safe. And if you try to help somebody else, now they're going to have two people instead of just one who's dying of, of hypoxia. Okay? So it's a self-serving thing on their part to make sure you serve yourself first. But the reality is, if there was an emergency and a crisis, very few people would care about the person next to them. They'd be grabbing for that cup to put it over their face because they can't breathe. And it's an innate thing. Self-preservation. The only ones in that flight who would not be doing that would be the mothers. Right? Because if the mother has their baby next to them, their first thought is, my baby. But other than that, every other human being on that flight, when, that, when those cups drop, when you can't breathe because the oxygen is being sucked out of the room, you're scrambling trying to protect yourself. That's just innate. It is who we are as human beings. Now bring that into our relationships and we deal with other people in the same way. Me, me, i got to protect me. And especially in our culture. I've got to be first. I've got to... Look at the people on China Hot Springs Road. For heaven's sakes. you got to pass me on a curve with a double yellow line. Why? So you can be in front? Well, have at it, folks. I'll slow down to 35. Because there's a car coming that you can't see, but I can. It happened to me this week. I was so mad. I was like, are you an idiot? And then calling them an idiot was kind of self-serving on my part too because I was angry and it made me feel better. But do you get the point that I'm saying? What Joseph saw in his brother Judah was something totally countercultural, totally, totally opposite to what a normal human response would have been. Because the normal response, and especially in that dysfunctional family... <laughs> Benjamin stole the cup. Let him pay the penalty. I didn't like him anyway. He was another source of pain. My dad always said, he's the best one. He's the only one I got left. That would have been the normal response. Especially in that kind of a dysfunctional household. But something had changed in the heart of Judah, if not all of them. And it was this Christ-like selflessness that we then see in Jesus thousands of years later. And we are commanded. If you go back to John chapter 15, and we're going to close with that. John chapter 15. Excuse me. Maybe it was 14. Where is it? Now I'm not finding it. Anyway, where Jesus said, I didn't have it written in my notes. That's, I'm doing it for my brain. Um, where he said, if you follow my commandments, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for a friend. You are my servant. You are my children if you follow my commandments. So the commandment is to love. Then he describes what love is. Greater love has no one than this. Then he lays down his life for his friend. And you are my children if you obey my commandments. And so what Jesus is saying to his followers there is, is it 13? 
13, and then 13, 30, 44, 45, 46, or 37, 39. Something. Chapter 13. Here, let me just look it up real quick. Chapter 15, verse 13. Thank you. 1315. That's what I just said. <laughs> there it is. Okay, so it's 15, verses 12, 13, and 14. Thank you. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And he says, I no longer call you servants, for servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends. And the point of this is this. In our relationship with Jesus, we are called and we are commanded to love in that way. We are the ones that should be running into burning buildings. We are the ones that should be running out in traffic, throwing people out of the way of cars that are coming. Because it should be in our mind. It should, be, it should become almost innate in us. To be selfless. To not be thinking about us first. That's hard. That's very hard. Because for any of us who have ever experienced hurt, for any of us who have ever lived with dysfunction, either on our own part or because of somebody else's dysfunction and all the pain coming at us, it is very difficult to not keep ourselves guarded and protected and to not allow us to say, you know, i got to watch out. Make sure nobody in my house gets hurt. Because I, even in Bible college, I remember distinctly, God first, your family second, then the church. It's got to be that way, gentlemen and ladies. God first, your family next, then the church. Do not let the church train you otherwise. That's what we were taught in Bible college. So in this mindset, I'm protecting my house. I'm protecting my family. But the reality is, I should trust God to protect my house and my family, and I should just walk out into the traffic if I need to. I should dive into the water if I need to. I should not put my oxygen mask on and put the other person's on. And you know why? I know Jesus as my personal Savior. If I die, I know where I'm going. Do they? You've heard the story about the minister who was on the Titanic who gave away his life jacket because he said, I know Christ and you don't. He literally said that to the person. That's what the legend says, at least. And then in his last words as he was in the water with no life jacket were calling out, Do you know the Lord? Do you know the Lord? Do you know the Lord? The whole focus was on other people. Doing what is right, doing what is best, doing what is appropriate. And that's what we see right here in the story of Judah, his brother Joseph. I am willing to give up everything to make it right for the other. I cannot bear the thought. I cannot bear the thought that in my selfishness, someone else would suffer. Please. Please have mercy. That's a powerful story. It's a horrible picture, but it's the best one I could find to demonstrate what we're talking about. In a situation where you can't see anything but death, you can't see any way out, and you still choose me over them. Let me die. Don't take them. I'm going to protect them. I'm going to do what's right for them. Because I know that if, it, if I do die, I know where I'm going. I don't know what about their life. 
And that's what I believe God is calling us to do. It doesn't have to be that dramatic. Like I said a few weeks ago, go over and fold somebody's laundry at the laundromat. Let them have the first shot of the shower. Pump somebody's gas for them and pay for it. Whatever God asks of you, do it with a selflessness that honors Christ. Let's pray.